0: Hey, church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, if you have already not done so. Luke chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 20 Uh, today. It will be our primary text. And if you have been with us as we've experienced this Advent season, then you know we've been looking at these first two chapters of Luke, of his gospel account, Uh, and what Luke has done here in the opening of his Uh, record of the life of Jesus as he's woven together two birth narratives we were introduced to John the Baptist and his uh, mother and father Elizabeth and Zachariah and then introduced to to Jesus mom Mary and what what Luke has done is he's sort of put these two different narratives or enunciations these stories of these births of uh, the Messiah and his forerunner John the Baptist who would go before the Lord and to prepare a way and so as, as we've done so, what we've been doing is really experiencing this longing, this desire, along with the characters of Luke chapter 1 and 2. And that's really what the Advent season is about. We, we experience Advent. We walk through the liturgy of this time of year, of this season, not just to celebrate something, but, but also to lament and to be sorrowful and to feel even an ache an ache in the Advent season, and so as we come to this particular text, what we will be introduced to again is what we're constantly introduced to when we open up God's Word is Jesus himself, God himself, and uh, perhaps uh, unexpectedly and even paradoxically, we'll see that he, and we have seen, that he comes in sorrow, he comes in celebration, he comes humble yet exalted, and as his birth draws to a uh, close, or this birth narrative rather draws to a close, we see more and more about who this Jesus is. And, and really, if there is any uh, question or any desire that I would have for you, our church family, as we uh, experience this Advent season, it, was to, it would be to more clearly understand the person and work of Jesus. And so Father, we ask that you would help us to that end. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to behold him today. I, I pray that you would help us. Help us to know your word. Help us to submit to your word. Help us, uh, Father, to to see and to savor this good news of who you are and what you have accomplished for our joy and the joy uh, of this world. And so uh, we ask for your help as we come to this word today. In Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. All right, meet me at Luke chapter 2 verse 1 and following. Let's look at the first seven verses first. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was Uh, "...of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth." And then verse 7, "...and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." And so when Mary is far along, uh, Jesus' birth draws uh, close, and Luke has been following this narrative again for these first two chapters, and and in that particular moment, a decree goes out uh, from the governing authorities out to the entire known world, and this young couple, young yet-to-be-married couple, has to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. When they get there, Jesus is born. And they, they either tried to stay with their relatives and there was no room uh, for them there to have the appropriate accommodations or they went to the local hotel or inn and they didn't have, again, the, the right uh, space for their, their, their family. It's difficult to say specifically uh, what's going on? But but they encounter this space where there are animals and a manger, either a feeding trough or a stall for animals. And so what what we see here is a very unexpected story for the arrival of a king. Remember, uh, Gabriel the angel has, has heralded that the Messiah is coming. That this would be the Messiah who uh, Mary was going to give birth to. And so we we can easily move past these details because we are familiar with them. And but but we should be. Uh, some, somehow arrested by and, and stopped in our tracks, if you will, in the season of how unimpressive this all is and how common this all is. We, we have a young family from a little Jewish line following the regulations of a government and welcoming their first child in relative obscurity and an incredible discomfort. You know, in the United States, we have these things called birth stories that uh, uh, mother and father, and particularly a mom, r- writes down what she desires to be the story of the birth or the de- desires for uh, what happens when she gets to the hospital and how she receives treatment. All of those things are really important um, in our sort of modern context here in the United States. And yet, think about that. That's our sort of concept of anticipating all of these different details and none of us would have selected this. Uh, no uh, soon to be parent would have said, well, you yeah, know, what, what I want is I wanna move in the middle of pregnancy. I, I want to have trouble finding a place when I know that I'm about to deliver this child. And I want to hang out with some animals. Like that really is the birth story that none of us would have crafted. And yet this common and incredibly unimpressive reality is the nature of Jesus' birth. And it should be startling to us because we know who he is. Mary knows who he is. Joseph knows who he is. The Ga- Gabriel, the angel, told Mary, that he would be, uh, again, verse uh, 32 in chapter 1, if you'll look at it with me. Here's what Gabriel says, and this certainly is on Mary's mind as she is about to give birth. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And if you skip down to verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, he says to Mary, Uh, And the power of the Most High will overcome you or overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So if we're reading this for the first time, we're anticipating that there is a king coming to take over the throne of the great King David. And he's going to have a kingdom that is even unlike King David's. It's going to be a kingdom with no end. The last thing we would expect is that he would be born in obscurity, born in such an unimpressive way in such a small estate, such a humble estate. See, but Mary knows who he is. Joseph knows who he is. We know, and, and we know even as readers because all of history has prepared us for this boy, this Jesus, about who specifically he would be. See, all of the Old Testament anticipates him. Most commentators agree that the Old Testament doesn't just prepare us in general, it prepares us in its patterns, its promises, and even in the very presence of the Son of God. What do, we, what do we mean by this? First, let's think about the patterns of the Hebrew Bible. That The patterns of the Hebrew Bible whisper the nature and quality of Christ. See, when God's people are saved from captivity and delivered to a promised land, they are taught even along the way to, to make blood sacrifices for uh, the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In, in all of that, we see Jesus But not just in the patterns, also in the promises. That there are promises that God makes in which he directly connects the Messiah to the line of David, to the town of Bethlehem, and even the pain of this promised one, this figure, this Messiah that was coming. And when God's people are promised hope and salvation and redemption through this suffering servant, we see Jesus. So we see him in the patterns of the Old Testament. We see him in the promises of the Old Testament, and there are even moments, Church, where the very presence of the Son of God is made known in the Old Testament. We would call this the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. We see this in John chapter one that he, that the Son of God, was present as the as the Word at the very beginning of creation, and at creation, even before creation, the Son of God is the liberating. Uh, presence, the liberating power, the liberating redeemer who brought his people out of Egypt. That's what Jude 5 teaches us. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3 verse 25. See, when God's people are lifted by the presence of the word or the redeemer of the son of God, we see Jesus in the patterns and the promises and the presence that make us ready. They help us to anticipate and, and help us to long appropriately for the fullness of all of these things to come about in the limitless and untold worth and beauty and majesty of the Messiah. See, this is what Mary knows. This is what Joseph knows. This is what we, this is what we ought to know. And yet, we know all of this content, all of this information, all of this glory about who this boy would be and who this boy was at the moment of his birth, and yet there are all these common moments, all of these common details that persist all the way up until a chorus of angels come into the scene. See, to this point, the narrative and all of the details have been identical to John's. Luke is is not just introducing us to two people, but, but he's even juxtaposing these two people to further explain the nature of who the Messiah, who Jesus is. And he even bookends, Luke does, his, his account of uh, Jesus' birth birth in this particular portion of scripture with his circumcision and naming, which directly mirrors John's story as well. But in verse 8, we catch a clear glimpse that Jesus is not like John, and John is not like Jesus. They are not equals. Look at verse 8 and we'll continue. Chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, "Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So, the common nature of the story just a family following the regulations of their government, doing as they are told, young couple, not very proud in terms of bravado and prestige and their own glory. All of this commonality and normalcy, if you will, in the story is completely swallowed up by this announcement of majesty. See, shepherds outside of the town are minding their very own business and doing their job. And in the middle of that, angels show up and say, this is no ordinary birth. This is not a common birth. See, the glory of what can be seen, though, is p- pales in comparison to what the angels say to them. What, what can be seen pales in comparison to what is actually just been said. See, the, the shepherds have seen angels. That would, that would be enough. That would be incredible. We would all need some time to unpack our thoughts after seeing such a display. They've seen the visible display of God's worth and beauty. They've seen his glory, the glory of the Lord shown around them, Luke says. They, they have seen something they've never seen before. They wouldn't have had a framework for this personally. But what the angels said was even more glorious. See, similar to Mary and Zechariah, the shepherds are assured that they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to fear what they see. Instead, they can find great comfort that the angels have shown up. Isn't this wild that, that their initial response is like that of almost everyone in the Bible when they first see an angel is one of fear fear of concern, of worry, and, and the angel has to do what I'm sure they uh, are going to tell stories forever about. that. Remember how we always had to come to people and say, yo, it's okay, fine, calm down. Can you imagine how tired they would get of that story, right? Because that's what they always have to do. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm actually here for a good reason. I'm here, I'm here to bring you joy. See, along with signs and proofs that back up their claim in, in all that they have, have done, the angels really have two things that they want to say two things. The first thing that they say is that Jesus is Lord for everyone. Look again at verse 10 and 11, chapter 2. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you, what's that, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So what is the good news of great joy, the gospel, quite literally? What, what is it? It's that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, because we may be familiar with that language, we, we may, within sort of a religious space and within the scriptures, we, we may miss that this was an incredibly blasphemous thing to say to the common man in the first century. This, this defied modern and contemporary thinking that, that Caesar was Lord. The good news or gospel of the first century Roman Empire was the power and beauty and glory and worth of Caesar, that he was Lord. In fact, even in Jesus' birth story, we we get a picture of his authority that, that is covering all of the world. All of the world, Luke says, had to comply with his regulations and his registration decree. So what exactly are the angels saying? when they come into that space, into that moment of time, even at that exact moment where this word had gone out and everyone was submitting to the lordship of Caesar. As followers of Jesus, we we talk about Jesus as Lord all the time, don't we? But I think often we mean very different things by it. We have different things that come to mind when we think about Jesus being Lord. See, we may look around and think to ourselves, well, Jesus doesn't look like he's Lord yet. We may look in the news. We may look at our social media feeds. We may just look in the streets of Chicago and say, Jesus certainly isn't Lord yet. So, So we begin to think that his lordship is some sort of like aspiration of the future. We may look inside and think, well, he's not a Lord out here, but inside of my heart, he's Lord. We may look into the heavens and think to ourselves, well, surely he is Lord in the heavenly realms. Certainly he is Lord in a spiritual sense. And in truth, what I think is really important to understand is he is all of that and so much more. See, if we have only one of those ideas of his lordship that comes to mind when we think about Jesus as Lord, and we think about the gospel, we have a truncated, a, a small view of what the gospel and what the, the lordship of Jesus actually means. See, within the story, in the angel's message, Jesus' lordship is really clarified. It comes into focus, and they make sure we understand, in what they say, what it means that Jesus is Lord. See, the Son of God is born in human form. Therefore, we can understand that one of our perspectives is too limited, that he can't just be Lord in a spiritual sense. He took on flesh. The angels even used uh, language that was present. It wasn't future, it wasn't aspirational, it wasn't past tense, it it was not circumstantial. They they said, who is Christ the Lord? They don't say he will be when he grows up. They didn't say he will be when he returns again and sets things to rights in the future. They said, this one who is born is Christ the Lord. Jesus' lordship is not future, it is forever and always See, Caesar may seem like Lord because he has given out this decree to all of the world. And so we may look and say, well, certainly uh, Jesus is not Lord of the Roman Empire in the first century because it seems like Caesar is leading that thing. But unbeknownst to Caesar, here's, here's what's so spectacular about the lordship of Jesus. Unbeknownst to Caesar, his decree is used by God to accomplish the will and word of God who said that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Without that decree, he would not have been born in Bethlehem. And so the Lord is providentially even using those who seem to be in earthly power for his purposes. See, this is the lordship of Jesus at work in all of the places and spaces of life, in our hearts, in this world, over us and under us and around us and all over. Jesus is Lord Everywhere, at all times, over all things. Scholar N.T. Wright makes it plain when he says, Jesus rescues human beings in order that through them, he may rule his world in the new way that he always has intended. In, in other words, his lordship, to be sure, runs through the heart of his prized creation, those who bear his image, and yet he is lord of our hearts that we might see his lordship, his will, his way, his reign, his rule take hold right here and right now. This is why he taught his disciples to pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So perhaps unbeknownst to the disciples, what they were praying, they were meant to be the answers for. When they're praying for the kingdom of God to come here and now, they, they are meant to take on the action of that request in the submission, the due submission of the king, and see and, and do the work of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control to see the lordship and kingship of Jesus take hold of the world. See, see, Jesus is Lord in the fullest sense of lordship. Now, forever, in you, in me, around us, in heaven and on earth, and his reign is through his people. So the question isn't, when and is Jesus Lord, but rather, have you submitted to the reality of his lordship? The question this Advent season in the midst of our longing is not whether or not he is Lord. The question is, have you submitted to him as Lord? Not only so, but but notice this language that Jesus, that this gospel is for all, that Jesus is Lord for everyone. Did you notice that? that? That Christ is the Lord will be for all the people. See, I think that most of us in our modern mindset, most modern people are comfortable choosing a Lord. A central power for their lives. If you want Jesus to be your, your Lord, cool. I'm choosing something else. I'm choosing someone else. You do you. I'll do me. If you want to call it Lord, great. I'll call it central power. I'll call it my, my central self. I'll call it my internal voice, whatever it might be. You choose what you want to do. See, I think we're really comfortable with the idea that you can choose your Lord. I, however, most people in Chicago, are very uncomfortable with the idea of submitting to the Lord. In in other words, we are good choosing a Lord, but are repelled by the idea that the Lord would give us no choice who to call Lord. But you see, Jesus is not the Lord over religious people only, nor is he only the Lord over Christian nations, supposedly called. He is not simply the Lord of those who wish him to be their Lord. He is Lord. Hard stop. His lordship is for all the people. See, contrary to our modern presumption, Jesus is not a Lord relegated to religious affairs. He is Lord. Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord of all. That's the first thing that the angels say. To the shepherds. They next they this they call in this multitude, if you recall, of reinforcements and announce something else. They say, God's glory has come to earth. Look again at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now the glory of God is the visible display of his worth. And beauty. It's the eminence. It's the transcendence. It's his power. It, it, it's his might. It's his love. It's his grace. It's all of the things that make him God, that demonstrate the truth of who he is on this visible and glorious, illuminating display. And his preeminence is unmitigated. It's never diluted in the heavenly places. But these angels are telling us something else. They're not saying God is glorious in heaven. They're not saying that he is just glory in the highest. They are bringing, they are saying his his glory rather is being brought within the context of this world through the Messiah, which then results in peace and divine pleasure. This defied religious thinking, that God doesn't mingle with the common storyline, that God doesn't mingle with the mundane. See, God's holiness is quite literally his separation from us. When we talk about God being holy, we're talking about what Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Here's what it says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Perhaps you've heard this. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. See, where God dwells, that place where God dwells is removed from our existence. What God thinks is removed from our thoughts. What God does is removed from our ways. We are not him. He is not us. This reality was deeply ingrained into the Hebrew mind. God himself was so holy that his name was rarely spoken in common conversation and reference to God to this day. Even when Jews speak or when they write, they they write G G-G. D, his name is so holy, he is so holy and righteous and set apart and glorious that they dare not speak his name flippantly or casually. This utter distinctiveness led uh, theologian R.C. Sproul to write this in his book, The Holiness of God. There is a special kind of phobia which we all suffer, it is called xenophobia. Xenophobia is a fear or sometimes a hatred of stranger or foreigners or of anything that is strange or foreign. And so he continues, God is the ultimate object of our xenophobia. He is the ultimate stranger. He is the ultimate foreigner. He is holy and we are not. God is so different. We ought to fear him. And yet, though, though that's who he is, Luke tells us, the angels announce in, in this field at night to this collection of shepherds. I mean, it's coming to them that the God who is high and holy is bringing peace and pleasure to this world through Jesus. In other words, the God who is removed from us is drawing near to us. The God who dwells in heaven, as Eugene Peterson has said, has moved into the neighborhood. The God whose thoughts are over our heads, his word, he is the living living logic of God, has taken on flesh. The God whose doing is beyond our reach is about to take our place. He is not us and we are not him. And yet, miraculously, beautifully, graciously, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Why is this so startling to the religious mind? And it is. It should be. Well, if God is removed from us only, if he is only holy and set apart, then we are justified to act as if we are removed from other people when we act and live like God. In other words, if we obey the rules of a holy God, we have cause to live with moral superiority towards our neighbors. Are you with me? It's, it's what we do This is why the church has historically uh, had a reputation of being judgmental and entitled because we got too religious. We we began to think as though because God is set apart, if we act like him, then we're set apart like him too and, and different and removed from and disengaged with the world. See, it's our failure to remember appropriately and rightly, biblically, the Advent story, that the glory of God has come to earth. That's what leads to this religious arrogance. See, this pulls out the rug from under us then when we hear this story. Our submission to the law is actually not our righteousness. And I'm eager to to get back to Romans chapter 3 in January because that that will help us to understand that, that a righteousness apart from the law has manifested has come to us in Jesus Christ. See, if God has come to us, then in our submission, it is our submission to Him alone, not, not His law, but to Him, is where we find our righteousness. That's what makes us righteous. See, if religion says, because I am like God, I'm moving towards Him morally, therefore I'm acceptable to Him then ultimately I believe that I am better than those who don't perform and live the same way that I do. But if the story of the gospel is true, and it is, that God is not saying come to me, but actually I've come to you, then we are on the same level playing field of earth as anybody else, no matter what our works are. Our works, in fact, are dead outside of relationship with him. See, we have no reason to be prideful. In truth, why are the religious so proud? Let's think about it. In fact, I'll just be real. Uh, with you personally, the primary reason why I work so hard and, and, and don't rest and say yes to everything and everybody, the primary reason I'm tempted to even obey God's word for my own purposes is because I think I can earn God's love through my obedience. So, so ultimately what I believe, and what I'm trying to say is that I think God loves me because I draw near to him. That, that's the religious mindset. The religious mindset says that when I draw near to God through good works, through obedience to his word, that he loves me. And therefore, I have to be daily animated by that and constantly garner his affections. See, ultimately, I, I, I think that the news that God has drawn near to me, I think that's too good. I think that joy seems too great. That God in Christ would love me and draw near to me. But that's precisely what the gospel says. That's precisely the good news of great joy for all people that the angels are delivering on this particular night. They tell the shepherds two things, that Jesus is Lord of all and that the glory of God has come to earth. To this day, these words cut to the quick. They cut us both ways. See, Jesus exposes the heart of the modern person who can't fathom being ruled like that. He exposes the religious person who can't fathom being loved like that. Do you see the good news of great joy is for the modern person as well as the religious person that we can be completely ruled and completely loved by the same person, Jesus Christ. That's actually what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2. Hear this, church. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his the show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may be Boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are loved not when we make our way to God through good works, but rather we are loved because God has come to us, and therefore our response is to live in obedience to him. See, modern people. And I think all of us probably wrestle with this, living in Chicago, being exposed to the kinds of worldviews that we are in our families and in our work, in our relationships, on on the various online communities that we're a part of and social media. See, modern people don't want to be ruled and religious people don't trust unconditional love. How about you? either, Either way, we've got a serious issue with the gospel we have a disbelief of the gospel that we don't want to be ruled or we don't trust unconditional love see many of us who call chicago home came here from a town we thought was too small for us we came to the city got a job climbed the ladder did whatever we pleased with whomever we pleased and we made our own way and acclaimed whatever you know sort of goals or aspirations maybe not perfectly but this is why we came to the city to to get something to make make something of our lives because the city told us that we could be lords of our own lives, that that we could live as if we were in charge. See, the city tells us that we're in charge and we can become whoever we want to be. In fact, every Disney movie tells us that too. It's not unique. Others of us fear and judge the city. See, maybe we got here for these aspirational reasons, but we came with a sort of spiritual lens as well, and we came and began to fear and judge the city. We criticize the school system and decry the corruption that we see the city seems broken and we're convinced that we're not. The city tells us we're holy and righteous and we don't disagree with them and we think then ultimately that we're better than our neighbors. These these are the ends created by, by a modern way of thinking and by a religious way of thinking. Can I tell you something? Remember, I love you. The city is lying to you. The city is merely an echo chamber. It only tells you what you want to hear. Because the city is not the issue. Your heart is. My heart is. That's why Jeremiah says that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. It's convinced all of us that the city is whispering us promises. That the city is telling us we're good. See, Advent is the story of the arrival of the Messiah, who is both Lord and the Lord who is also love. No matter your story or temptation, this is good news of great joy that points us to the truth and beauty of Jesus. What we are really looking for in the city, whether in our modern sensibilities, or our religious proclivities, is peace and pleasure. We want to be at peace and we want to experience happiness and joy. And I think at at the core of that, if I can, especially in this season, we just want to be at rest. We just want to be content, don't we? And so we look to our work, we look to relationships, we even look to religion. But we never find either of these things. We never find pleasure, we never find peace. And if if we do for just a moment, we realize they actually don't last. Some of us, that's why we got married. That's why we had kids. That's why we took this job. That's why we're thinking about taking the next one. It's why we wanna leave the city. It's why we came to the city. See, we've convinced ourselves that we'll find the most joy in our lives if we rule our own lives or that we can claim peace and love with God through our own works of righteousness. And either way, it really is a reframing of the same deception in the heart. See, because have you noticed, both only lead to more anxiety and more suffering. It's a vicious cycle. It's unsatisfying all the time, no matter which way that you most view and see yourself in your life. Neither lead to what you are after, and both always take more than they give. See, what God is telling us today, church, through his angels as they announce and herald the coming of Christ, is that only Jesus can calm your anxiety and bring you lasting joy. In other words, the longings of your heart are only satisfied in the patterns, promises, and presence of Jesus Christ the Lord. Why? Why is that the case? Why is that the claim that we as followers of Jesus ought to be willing to hang our lives upon, to be willing to trust and rely upon? Because he is the only Lord who loves you. Every other Lord, every other central power that you could put at the centerpiece of your affections, the centerpiece of your thinking, the centerpiece of all of your priorities of your life, they will never love you back. Church, hear this, your idols never love you back. That drink will never love you back. That work will never love you back. Even in our marriages, our marriages, our spouses can never love us back to the full extent that we truly and fully desire and need. Your children will not love you back the way that ultimately will be satisfying. Even our closest relationships, when we make them central, we put too much pressure on them. We crush them, we kill them, and what kills us to Jesus is the only Lord that loves us back. See, it's wrapped up in the second portion of verse 14. See, as on earth, he says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Hear this good news, that Jesus makes you pleasing in God's sight. Jesus alone makes you pleasing in God's sight. The initial response of Zechariah and Mary and the shepherds is fear. And in each case, nearly every case in the New Testament, this is the first thing that angels have to do. We, we've spoken about this, is assure their audience, assure whoever they have come to speak to, that they are there at the behest of mercy and love. They are expecting, I think when you first see an angel, that this power will overwhelm them. We are expecting righteous glory to crush us. It's too much for us. It's too separate for us, from us. It's too different. It's too, it's too big. It's too great. It's too grand. We can't stand in the kind of life In that kind of light, rather, without being fully exposed. And so we're afraid. See, in our modern minds, we don't expect or like love that comes with lordship. In our religious hearts, we don't expect or trust lordship that comes with love. We don't expect unconditional love, but they come. They have come. God has always come bringing good news of great joy. He never lays down his lordship and he always brings the fullness of his love. Specifically, the angels have come to announce that through the Messiah, people can have peace with God. You can have peace with God. Do you have peace with God? Or are you looking for it still? Like real talk, like this is the reason. When when you see God face to face one day, And he asks you, why should I welcome you into this paradise? If there is even a moment of asking this kind of question. What would your response be? What what would actually come to your mind? Is is it your works? Is it all of the good that you have done? Or would you just say, I'm with him. And point to Christ. (laughs) Christ. I'm with him. I have peace, even in this moment. I have peace because I'm hiding behind his righteousness. I'm hiding behind his affection. I'm here at his invitation. I'm here because of his work. Only Jesus brings that kind of peace. We're even being in the presence of the one who is most foreign, most different, most holy from us. We can respond. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because Jesus has washed away our guilt and shame. So they're saying that through the Messiah and the angels are that through Jesus, people can find pleasure and acceptance and love from God. You can know joy. Even in the valley of the shadow, you can know a joy unspeakable. Think about that, church. You don't have to rule your own life. In fact, you, you're going to mess it up. I've already messed it up. You will mess it up. I will mess it up. You don't have to hustle for your own holiness or chase down your own happiness. See, in Christ, we find a master who won't crush us. In Christ, we find a love that doesn't disappoint us. And we won't find that anywhere else. The Lord who loves us. In Matthew 11, Jesus has a pretty amazing thing, actually. He promises peace and assurance, but not in the way that we would expect. Hear this, Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So now Jesus invites any who's weary and tired, heavy laden, to come to him. What do we find there? What do we find in the presence of Jesus? Peace. This is is the peace come to earth. It's Jesus. Jesus is the peace that has come to earth. Hear this, my brothers and sisters. I know you're tired. I'm tired. I know you're weary. I know this season has been devastating. But it's not only this season. It's your heart. It's not the city. It's your heart. It's my heart. We long for a Lord who will actually love us. In fact, we've been waiting our whole lives. Sometimes we don't even know that we're longing and waiting for this. We've been longing our whole lives, but we don't want to be crushed and we don't want to be betrayed. And this is what Advent is about. It's about waiting and longing and feeling that space between desire and fulfillment of longing for the Lord who actually loves us, who satisfies and nurtures and fills us to overflowing. I was listening to Pastor Keller, Tim Keller, teach on this particular passage in Matthew recently, and he explained, I think so helpfully, that a yoke in the first century was known by everyone to be something that always had one more than one being, more than one beast of burden, if you will, uh, tied to it. So the yoke was not just a heavy burden, it was something that fashioned you, it connected you to another. But in Jesus' illustration, we realize that when we submit to the Lord's of money and career, relationships, any other lord in this world the city has to offer, we are controlled and eventually destroyed by them. In other words, we don't find rest. We find our death. We don't lead our own lives ever. We are always bound to something. The the sort of personal autonomy and agency, completely independent from anything and anyone else, is an illusion. We are always bound to something. However, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, get into life with me he says. Submit to me. Let me be your Lord. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. You'll find rest with me. My yoke won't destroy you. My burden won't crush you. Jesus is the Lord who loves us. He is the master, the controlling force that will not ever take more than he gives. He will not crush you. He is this kind of Lord, not simply because he came in flesh, but also because he came to die. Therefore, he can give You what modern thinking and religion cannot. He can give you lasting peace, church, and joy because he alone is the Lord who loves. Jesus' birth narrative concludes with a number of various dispositions and responses. And I think each is really instructive for us as we consider the real Jesus, who he really is, what he is really like, this Lord who loves us. See, the shepherds make plans and they're heading to Bethlehem. We'll conclude this portion looking at verse 16 through twenty. Luke writes, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's vital to note, I think it's really important, everything that the angels said they would find, they found, just exactly as they promised. So it's the fulfillment then of all that they understood and heard and anticipated in that moment that they heard the angels speak to the moment that they saw the baby Jesus that animates their response. However, more than anything else, These characters are getting a taste of the reality of who this boy is. It's more than just words are matching the facts or what they see, what they hear, and matching what they are experiencing. Notice, everyone wonders in amazement. Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. The shepherds worshipped God. They, they, They glorified and praised God. They wondered. They treasured. They pondered. They glorified. They praised the Lord. This Christmas season, would you wonder? Would you be amazed by him? Would you ponder? Would you treasure up who Jesus is? Would you glorify him and praise him? Don't try to rule your own life. Don't try to chase down a joy that will never satisfy you. Don't trust your own righteousness. Let him alleviate your skepticism. Let Jesus overwhelm your self-righteousness with his glorious, unmatched worth and beauty. Submit to Jesus, the Lord, who is also your greatest love, so that you will know his joy, his peace, and his pleasure. Heavenly Father, What a joy it is to be yours. Help us. Humble us. That we we too, like the shepherds, like Mary and Joseph and the rest, that we would worship you rightly as the Lord who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.